Well, we're back in our study in the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 11. And expository preaching is indeed an adventure. It is a very common experience for me to go into a text and come out with conclusions that were completely unexpected. Come out to truths and principles that I did not predict or expect. Well, today is no exception. Um, The conclusions that I've come up with are definitely unexpected on my part. This morning, we'll look together in John chapter 11, 45 through 54. And really, a theme of our study, the topic of our study, is decision-making. Decision-making. Now, today is somewhat of a special Sunday, I guess, in the eyes of the world. It is Super Bowl Sunday. So I thought it's appropriate to begin with some sports illustrations. But looking at some awful decisions made in sports... A few awful decisions made in sports. Well, when you think about bad decisions in recent sports history, a few names come to mind. The first name is Chris Webber. Right? 1993, finals against North Carolina. Their team was down by two points. 11 seconds to go. Chris Webber from University of Michigan grabbed the rebound. And he actually traveled to get an extra step. The refs didn't call it. He dribbled down court, and he passed Jalen Rose for a three-pointer, and they won the game. No, that didn't happen. Right? <laughs> he drove to the basket, got a dunk, got fouled, and made the free throw for a win. No, that didn't happen either. Inexplicably, he called a timeout they did not have. And with that decision, a technical foul was called, and University of Michigan lost North Carolina before a world, worldwide, or at least a nationwide audience. Bad decision-making. A bad mistake. More recently, what about manager Grady Little of the Boston Red Sox? Game 7 of past year's American League Championship against the Yankees. The Red Sox haven't won in several lifetimes. <laughs> they were up 5-2 in the 7th inning. Pedro Martinez, their ace pitcher, had just thrown 100 100, um, pitches, and everyone was calling for Pedro to be pulled. It was obvious that he was tired. His pitches were slowing down. Everyone called for his removal except for the manager, Grady Little. He decided to leave Pedro in the game. A bad decision. Before he, he figured out his bad call, The Yankees scored three runs, and ultimately the Red Sox lost in 11 innings, 6-5, and Grady lost his job. One final bad decision. This past year in um, football, Marty Morningweg of Detroit Lions, the former coach, they had lost 13 straight games, road games. Well, on their 14th road game, they were up. 17-7 17-7 with less than three minutes to play. Ten-point lead. Well, the Bears scored ten points in that time. They went into overtime. Now, for the sisters, you don't know, in football, in overtime, right, the first team that scores wins the game. And how do they determine who gets the ball? They flip a coin. So that's very important that you win the toss. Well, they flip the coin, 
And the Detroit Lions won the toss. So if they score a field goal, they win the game. Well, the coach of the Detroit Lions, he decided not to take the ball, but to give the ball to the Chicago Bears, the opposing team. And subsequently, they came, drove down the field, kicked the field goal, and they lost. Not only did Detroit Lions lose the game, but within four months, Coach Morningweg lost his job as well. Bad decision. Well, it's three sports illustrations. I've got to give one for the sisters. and That's tough for me. So I had to ask my wife. I had to look up the internet. Still nothing, right? I had to reach back into my files, back to my youth ministry. When I was about eight, nine years ago, I was ministering to a bunch of youth kids. And there was a big controversy in our youth group. And all these girls would not welcome this one new girl to our youth group. And I asked them why. And they said, well, she made an awful decision. Well, what is it? Well, her first Sunday at church, she came to church with her top and her socks that were not matching. (laughs) The colors weren't matching, and that's unacceptable. She made a bad decision, therefore we cannot accept her. That's the best I could do for the sisters, right? (laughs) That's the best I could do. Decisions are important, are they not? Decisions are difficult, and bad decisions have bad consequences. Well, what about beyond sports, beyond youth ministry, soap opera, among sisters, dynamic? Uh, What about in all of human history? What would you say is the worst history, worst decision in the history of all mankind? The worst decision. Probably the second worst decision of all time would be made by a woman named Eve in Genesis chapter 3. Bad decision. She started it all. She didn't listen to her husband. You know, she wasn't there when God commanded him. So she said, well, well, how do I really know God commanded this? Adam didn't believe her husband. She didn't listen to God. And ultimately, she didn't even listen to the serpent. The text is clear. What does she do in Genesis 3? She listened to herself. She exercised her moral independence from God by judging God based upon her own judgments. And consequently, Eve made a very dreadful decision and through her singular choice, I contend, the second worst decision ever made, sin came into this world a horrific decision, a dreadful decision, but even that is not the worst. I would say that doesn't even come close to what I believe is by far the worst decision ever made in the history of the world. And that decision is found in John chapter 11. It was made by 70 men in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Here it is, guys. Verses 45 through 54 describes the most horrific decision made by any persons in all of human history. The decision was by the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of Israel, their decision to murder Christ. And it is beyond understanding. The 70 of the wisest men of Israel, 70 scholars, theologians, men who devoted devoted their lives to the study of the Word of God, Men of the highest intellect, 
reared in Bible training since they were young children, how could they collectively come together at a council and together come to the worst decision in the history of the world? How does this happen? It is beyond understanding. You know, I believe this morning by studying how they came to this decision, we will learn how to avoid making bad decisions, at the same time learn how to make good, noble, God-honoring decisions. There's a lesson in here for all of us this morning. And so I want to ask you today, how are, your, how are you doing in your decisions? How are you doing in your decisions? Are you making decisions that are honoring to God and to God's Word? In your heart, in your life, in your family, in your ministry, the decisions that you are making, are they honoring to God or are they dishonoring to God? Are you making horrible decisions that might make your name synonymous with bad decisions, right? I've heard this said, people say, don't pull a Chris Weber on me, right? Or don't be like, remember that guy Steve Bartman? The guy who went for a foul ball and the Chicago Cubs lost. Right? They blame him for everything from the problem in North Korea to war in Iraq. Right? Do you want your name to be synonymous with bad decisions? Are you making decisions where your name could be included in such use? Now, back to that question. How was this possible? The 70 wisest men of Israel. How could they be so blind? And how could they conclude that murdering Jesus was the right decision? This supremely wicked and evil decision was caused by a single mindset, a single philosophy. It is pragmatism. Pragmatism. Now, what is pragmatism? In your outline, I believe I have Webster's New World Dictionaries definition of pragmatism, quote, a method or tendency in philosophy which determines the meaning or truth of all concepts and tests their validity, validity by their practical results, end quote. Thus, pragmatism is first a philosophical mindset that determines the validity of something by its practical results. Norman Geisler sums it up simply, quote, If it works, therefore it is true. It is the idea that the value of an idea is determined by its practical consequences. So therefore, for a pragmatist, if an idea has a de- desired outcome, it is good. If an idea has an undesired outcome, it is false. If it works, it's right, it's true. If it doesn't work, it must be wrong. Now, let's go a little deeper here. More specifically, it is important for us to note, point out, there, there are two kinds of pragmatism. Two kinds. There is non-biblical pragmatism, and there is unbiblical pragmatism. Non-biblical Unbiblical. What is non-biblical pragmatism? It is pragmatism that does not undermine or violate 
biblical principles does not contradict, does not negate, does not undermine biblical principles. And let me give you some examples of this. I was thinking about this and I thought about Mike Castor and I going to um, Kazakhstan a few months ago. Um, we, got, we encountered some weather problems, so we got stuck in San Francisco overnight. Um, the airline graciously offered us a free hotel room, and we vehemently wanted two hotel rooms. We're two guys in San Francisco. We need two rooms, please. <laughs> Whatever it took, please give us two rooms. Well, next day, I mean, we had one goal. We need to get to Amsterdam to make our connecting flight to Almaty so that we could teach the Bible Monday at the Institute. So we were fiercely pragmatic on how to get to Amsterdam. doesn't matter for us. long as it's within the rules, within, <laughs> within the law, whether we go through Chicago, go through London, whether we go through another airline, whether we might even purchase an extra ticket or tickets or, or go up to business class, we consider those possibilities. Whatever it took, we were pragmatic. Without violating any biblical principles, we wanted to get to Amsterdam to get to Kazakhstan. Another example. One of the doctors at our church told my wife and I another case of non-biblical pragmatism at work. She was telling us that in the latter stage of pregnancy, if the baby is breached, meaning the head is, is, on the, uh, is not facing the right, right direction, what they would do is they would get two doctors and literally have a session where they move the baby and they push the baby in opposite directions to put the baby in the right position for, for labor and delivery, which is very painful. Well, doctor, that doctor told us that when she was in medical school, she did a research paper on another procedure in setting a breech baby in the right position. Now, I can't pronounce that procedure's name, but this is how it goes. They would burn paper or ash on the expectant mother's toe until the mother feels a burning sensation. And when she feels a burning sensation, she would stay hot and they would stop. And they would do this 30 or 40 times. And 80% of the time, the baby would turn by itself. And this was a medical research paper. I'm like, what? That doesn't make sense. Is that okay? You know what her response was? If it works, that's fine. If the baby turns, right, then it's all good. That is non-biblical pragmatism. Does that undermine a biblical principle? Does it violate the command of God? It's all right. But there's also the other side unbiblical pragmatism. This is a mindset that undermines and or contradicts the commands and principles of God's Word. And to see an example of this in the Scriptures, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15. This was Saul's mindset and it caused him to displease the Lord and the downfall of his throne. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 3. Well, God made it clear to Saul and the armies of Israel 
go attack the Amalekites. And God had some further instructions. Totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men, women, children, and infants, cattle, sheep, camels, and donkeys. Their sins were so heinous, God's holiness demanded the complete annihilation of the Amalekites. Verse 7, Samuel obeyed the first part of the command. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites. Go down to verse 9. But Saul and the army spared the king Agag, and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat and calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely. And then God speaks to Samuel, verse 11. Samuel, I am grieved that I have made Saul king. I am grieved. He blatantly disobeyed my command. He has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel is the one who anointed Saul as king. He grieved that night, cried out to the Lord all that night. Verse 12, early in the morning, Saul got up, went out to meet Saul. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, the Lord bless you. I've carried out the Lord's instructions. But Saul, Samuel said, What then is the bleeding of sheep in my ears? Then what am I listening to? What is this, the lowing of cattle that I hear? If you have obeyed God's command, you'd have destroyed all of them. Saul answered and he began by blaming the soldiers. The soldiers did this. They spared the best of the sheep, verse 15, and cattle to sacrifice the Lord. Stop, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Although you were once small in your eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and He sent you on a mission saying, Go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Make war on them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? He blames the soldier, soldiers again. And then here is the pragmatism in Saul's mind. Verse 21. This is how he justified disobeying the word of God. Samuel, we didn't destroy the animals so that we would sacrifice to God. What is that? That's pragmatism. The ends justify the means. Our our goal is to offer sacrifice to God. Therefore, it's okay to disobey the law of God. Because the end, end is noble. End is God honoring. Samuel replied, verse 22, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in what? Obeying the voice of the Lord. To obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed is better than the fat of rams. Rebellion is like the sin of divination. Arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, He has rejected you as king. It is only then Saul confesses, I have sinned. I have violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the people, and so I gave in, I gave in to them. You, you see Saul's unbiblical pragmatism? He thought to himself, my end is to worship God. 
by sacrificing these animals to the Lord. Therefore, it is okay to violate and disobey God's command. Well, that is going on still today. That is continuing even in the church today, that mindset. Or people are negligent, they're hesitant to talk about sin and holiness and the judgment of God because it offends people. They want to, they're open to dating non-Christians, marrying non-Christians because I want to evangelize to them so that I might proclaim the gospel and make them know Christ. It is okay to have women pastors because our goal, ultimate goal, is to win the lost. These are all examples of unbiblical pragmatism. It is very subtle. It is very tempting. Once ensnared in this mindset, one becomes blind. Blind to things that are clearly sin or clearly sinful. This is the reason why these 70 um, scholars, religious leaders of Israel could come together and conspire to murder Christ who was innocent of all accusation and they thought that it was a good decision. They thought it was a good decision. Now, one more thought. For unbiblical pragmatism to take root, for it to flourish, for it to be accepted, there must be some pre-existing conditions before unbiblical pragmatism um, can be practiced. Unbiblical pragmatism flourishes, exists, when there are certain prerequisites, certain preconditions. And we'll talk about that more a little later. If these preconditions are present in a church, in a family, or an individual Christian, it is ripe, a ripe situation for this to reign. For this to reign. That is why for me, what occupies my heart is not so much making right decisions. What occupies my heart is to make sure that I have the right pre-existing conditions for right decisions. And that I avoid, to the best of my abilities, any pre-existing conditions that would allow for unbiblical pragmatism. This will all make sense in a few minutes. Um, I mean, this is why I pray for humility. You know, I think almost every other month in our church-wide prayer request, prayer list, I pray for humility because if the pre-existing condition of my heart is pride, then pragmatism is not far behind. It's just a matter of time. Pride is a pre-existing condition that makes pragmatism flourish. If I want to make right decisions, it is supremely important that I tremble before the Word of God, that I am not prideful, that I am not arrogant, that I am not brash, that I don't have a high view of myself. If I, do, if I do have these things, I am setting up for wrong decisions. And so here in, in John eleven forty five through 54 we see all of these things. 
we see the preconditions for unbiblical pragmatism. So when Caiaphas presents this absurd argument, it flourishes. All 70 men blindly agree because the conditions are present for unbiblical pragmatism. Well, let's go to the text. Let's go to the exposition. Verses 45 and 46. John writes that many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he had done, they believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Now, the context here, if you remember, in John 11, is the most public and miraculous um, miracle of Christ in all of the Gospel of John. A dear friend of Christ, Lazarus, has been dead for four days. Our Lord comes publicly before hundreds of witnesses, and He calls Lazarus out, and still in his grave clothes, He comes walking out, raised from the grave. Now, many of the eyewitnesses see this miracle, and in an instant, their hearts are broken, and they believe in Christ. But verse 46, some of them went to the Pharisees in disbelief and told them what Jesus had done. And this tells us again that the old adage is true. That the same heat from the sun that melts butter hardens clay. The glory of Christ. It melts the hearts of some. But it has the opposite effect towards others. It hardens their heart. For many Jewish witnesses, it broke their hearts. It caused them to repent. It caused them to see the holiness of Christ and their own evil, their own wickedness. And at that point, they hated themselves. And they reached out to Christ, apprehended the knowledge of the living God, and trusted Him. But for others, their hearts became even more vehemently opposed to Christ. Instead of the miracle of Lazarus humbling them, the miracle added to the bitterness of his enemies. With sinister intention, this latter group went off to the Pharisees, not in order to tell them, you guys are off, you guys are wrong, you guys are mistaken, Jesus is the Christ, He is the Messiah, He is the Son of God. No, that was not their intention. They want the Pharisees to convince them that drastic action had to be taken against this miracle worker. We need to do something. This is getting out of control. He has raised miracles to a different level. Before, he was giving sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, voice to the mute. Okay, maybe he was giving movements to the paralytic, but now he's raised to a whole different level where there's a guy dead for four days. And he's now walking alive. If we let this continue, it'll be the end of us. We must take action. So they call together a meeting. Verse 47, the council's dilemma. They call together the supreme council of Israel. Under the oversight of Rome, this was a supreme Jewish court over the whole nation. This council consisted of chief priests, Pharisees, and the Sadducees. They all gathered together and they had, a, they had a question, they had a dilemma. Verse 47, they gathered the council and said, 
what are we to do? Because this man performs many signs. Now, stop right there. What a, what a marvelous admission by the enemies of Christ. Even our Lord's worst enemies confess that our Lord did many miracles. Compassionate works of wonder. I mean, no doubt, if they could have assigned any kind of, of, of duplicity or any kind of falseness in these miracles, they would have pointed it out. But even the most vehement enemies of Christ could not deny that Jesus, Jesus' miracles were true, they were genuine, they're bona fide. Too many witnesses, too public for them to dare to deny them. It was obvious. And so the question is, what are we to do? This again uh, reveals the wickedness of man's heart. The question is, what are we to do? That's a wrong question. That question is raised by wrong desires, wrong presuppositions. The right question is, okay, how shall we repent? Right? You know, Caiaphas, you want to go first and repent and lead the line for the rest of us? Should we repent in that way? Or should the lowliest member of the Sanhedrin repent first, culminating in Caiaphas? Is that how we should repent? That's the question. Or what does the Bible say? Or what is God's will? Instead of asking these questions, they ask the question, what are we to do? And in verse 48, we see the pre-existing conditions that cause an unbiblical argument, unbiblical pragmatic argument to flourish. Verse 48. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. For them, they had these non-negotiables. They were wrong, but for them it was non-negotiables. It was wrong desires, wrong goals. This reveals that they were only looking out for themselves. Their reasoning is, he's performing these miracles. If we let him continue, what's going to happen? You know what's going to happen? Everybody's going to believe in him. And they're not going to believe in us. That's unacceptable. Doesn't matter about truth. Doesn't matter if he's from God. Doesn't matter if he's a son of God. We can't accept this consequence of the people believing in Christ instead of us. No way. Secondly, Romans will come and take away our place, our temple, our authority. Another unacceptable consequence of allowing Christ to continue. Well, what are we going to do? That's how we make our money. That's my job. This is my career. I make money off the sacrifices that people come. And when we sell them in the marketplace in the temple, that's, that's our career, that's our, our, our way of living. Unacceptable. And finally, take away our nation. I wasn't their nation to begin with, but they saw the country as belonging to them. To them, it was inconsequential, the identity of Christ. His miracles. His truth, those were all secondary to these non-negotiables that were centered on themselves. And so, with those pre-existing conditions present, Caiaphas 
states in verse 49, the high priest that year said to them, you know nothing at all. An extremely rude remark. He denounces the stupidity of all that are present. He uses personal intimidation. Under the guise of noble patriotism, he justifies the murder of an innocent. And we know from, from parallel gospel accounts that Caiaphas was not a godly man. He was not a man befitting the position of a high priest. When, when he was persecuting Christ, he, he tore his uh, robe, he, put, he, he cried uh, verbally uh, and, and bemoaned the fact that Christ, Jesus pr- professed to be Christ, and in, in his heart he was a hypocrite. This, was he, this is what he conspired to do. He wasn't bemoaning the fact that Christ was to be murdered. He was joyful at it, but he was hypocritically sorrowful externally. With that intimidating statement in verse 50, he makes this statement, Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And here we see clearly a pragmatic statement, unbiblical pragmatic statement. We can identify by three marks. Verse, four, verse 50. You can maybe use this to discern when your heart gives you an unbiblical pragmatic statement. Maybe you can discern this when maybe I do, maybe your friends do, family members. Three marks of unbiblical pragmatism. Number one, center is man. It is utterly man-centered. The foremost mark. Caiaphas makes the argument, it is better for you. Right? It's all about you. Right? The whole thing, we need to find out a way to make it work for your benefit. And that's pragmatism. For pragmatists, truth is what benefits man. Truth for them was what enabled them to hold on to their prestige their position, their authority. So whether in a person, family, or a church, the first and clearest mark of the presence of unbiblical pragmatism is this. Their first concern is how a decision will benefit man, benefit people, or the church. And so what God thinks What pleases God is secondary. The utmost concern is what benefits man. This is opposite of what the Bible teaches us. The Bible teaches us that God does not exist for man. Teaches us that man exists for God. Marcus shared it with us this morning that God is not a pragmatist. That God exists to make much of himself, not make much of man. Job 23.13 Why does God stand? He stands alone. Who can oppose Him? Job 23.13 He does whatever He pleases. He does. God does what pleases Himself. Psalm 115.3 Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases Him. Even kings 
are created for the sole purpose of pleasing God. Proverbs 21.1 The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. Not only that, our Lord was not a pragmatist. John 8.29 The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. For I always do what pleases Him, pleases God. John 5.30 I seek not to please myself, but Him who sent me. And the Apostle Paul also was not a pragmatist. He exhorts the Ephesian church to find out what pleases the Lord. Galatians 1.10 Paul considered pleasing man as diametrically opposed to pleasing God. Am I now trying to win the pleasure, the approval of man or of God? If I try to please men, I will not be a servant of Christ. The first mark of pragmatic thinking is man-centered. Second mark is that its concern is short-term. Concern is short-term. Caiaphas says, it's better for you right now, for this life, that Jesus die. They're blind to the long-term consequence, that you're murdering the Son of God. No concern for the future, no concern for eternity. Pragmatism solves immediate problems and fulfills current needs without a concern for the long-term consequence of its decision. Pragmatist concern is about what happens in this world and in this world alone and in a mad quest for instant gratification. Pragmatism turns a blind eye to eternity. Brothers and sisters, the biblical mindset is exactly the opposite. The biblical mindset looks beyond five years, ten years, fifty years, looks to that day when we will stand before Christ and we will give an account of our lives before Him. Knowing that truth, we live our lives backwards. Knowing that's our destiny, we will stand before Christ. We live our lives backwards and it affects our decisions today. How we spend our time, how we spend our money, how we spend our energy, what's in our hearts, what we devote ourselves to. We retroactively live our lives based upon that eternal event. A pragmatist lives for the short term. The biblicist takes a long-term perspective. And that's how Paul lived. 2 Corinthians 5, 9-10, Paul said, We make it our goal to please Christ. Why? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due him for the things done well in the body, whether good or bad. 1 Thessalonians 3.13 He exhorted the Thessalonians, May He strengthen your hearts, so that on that day of Christ, when you stand before Him in His presence, you will be blameless and holy. Paul saw life as culminating before Christ, not on this earth. So everything is prologue that culminates, climaxes when we stand before Christ. Second Timothy 4, 1 and 2, Paul told Timothy, you need to preach the word. 
in season and out of season. Why? Verse 1. Because you will one day stand in the presence of Christ who will judge the living and the dead. One day you will give an account of your preaching, Timothy, to Christ Himself. Therefore, preach the Word. Pragmatism is concerned short-term. Biblical mindset is concerned for the long-term. And the final mark of unbiblical pragmatism is that it is blind to the truth. It has no concern for the truth. I mean, truth, by its definition, is obvious, right? And so, Jesus being the Son of God was obvious. John 3, it was, it's like elementary logic. Nicodemus comes to Christ at night, and he said, Rabbi, we know you're from God. We, everybody knows that. It's not a secret, because no one could perform these many miracles if they were not from Christ, if, if they were not from God. It's true. These Pharisees, they knew their Bible, and they knew math. And they went to Daniel chapter 9, and they did their mathematics. They knew Daniel's 70 weeks was running out. That the Messiah was to come imminently. They understood that. They understood the miracles that the Messiah would perform. They could not deny His miracles. It was obvious to common people, uneducated people, that Jesus was the Messiah. But because of their unbiblical pragmatism, because of their mindset, they were blind to this truth. That's a mark of unbiblical pragmatism. A biblical mindset. You're wide open to truth. Truth is clear. Wisdom is clear. Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light from my path. Well, to close our time, let me just ask you tonight, today, how is your decision-making? How is your decision-making in your heart, in your life, in your family, in your career, in your ministry? Is God pleased by your decisions? Are your elders pleased by your decisions? Is your wife or husband, your children, your fellow Christian brothers or sisters encouraged by your decisions? Or are you dominated by unbiblical, pragmatic decisions which results in not glorifying Christ and it does not satisfy you? If you are a Christian, you are not satisfied by living your life as a pragmatist. You know, I see bad decisions a mile away. You know, I want to help you to spot bad decisions. And how do you do that? As I said, it is by looking for these preconditions. Look for these uh, pre-existing conditions in your life, in your heart, and you can know bad decisions that are coming. Having wrong, wrong non-negotiables, having wrong desires, having wrong goals. Let me just share with you uh, some current preconditions that make unbiblical pragmatism uh, flourish in a person's life. Some examples. Uh, how about a non-negotiable? Christ plus I must get married. That's a non-negotiable in my life. I love Christ, but I must get married. Right? No matter what. Whether a believer or not, it does not matter. 
whether we are biblically united or not, does not matter. Whether I am ready or not, mature or not, it doesn't matter. My heart, my non-negotiable in my life is I must get married. You do that, you have that in your heart, you're setting yourself up for unbiblical pragmatism down the road. And you will spin decisions. And it will make sense to you. You'll be blind to truth. And you'll make scores of wrong decisions. How about Christ plus, I must be successful in my career. I must be. I must be successful in my life. Failure to me is not an option. I must be successful in my ministry. My church, my ministry must grow. Yes, I love Christ, but I must have this as well. No matter what. If I have to neglect my family, so be it. Neglect my walk with Christ. Use my walk with Christ as a means to a greater end, which is success in life. I will read my Bible so that I will be successful in ministry. I will pray so that I will have a good job. I will pray so that God would use me. Your personal walk becomes a means to an end. Success is everything. You have that in your heart. That's a non-negotiable. That's your desire. That's your secret idol. You are right for pragmatism. Or let me just list off a list, rattle, rattle off a list of things. Christ plus, I must have a perfect family. Perfect wife, perfect husband, perfect children. My children are going to be like angels, right? I must not fail. I must have security. How about this? I must not suffer. Right? I'm not used to suffering. I, you know, I had a charmed, you know, childhood, charmed life thus far. So suffering for others is acceptable. But me, no. I must not suffer in life. Suffer as a Christian. What about, what about I must be Christ plus happiness. Christ plus I must live comfortably. What about I must be a leader. I must be a pastor. I must have a formal position in ministry. I must make a certain income. I must have a house. I must be liked. I must be respected. I must be loved. I must be appreciated. I must be recognized. I must have what I deserve. I must be in control. If in your heart, if you have any of these non-negotiables, if you have to have anything, that thing will rule and control your heart. And in time, it will force you to accept unbiblical thinking. Unbiblical pragmatism. The goal in the Christian life is not, you know, day by day make right decisions. The goal in our lives is to shepherd our hearts so that our non-negotiable is Christ alone. Christ, period. See, if you have that heart, then you will make right decisions in life. Your decisions will be God-honoring, encouraging to fellow saints. Let me share with you Let's close, I promise to close. Preconditions for biblical decisions. Preconditions for biblical decision. As I said, have this right non-negotiable. In your heart, as believers, there must be a willingness to do whatever it takes to obey God's word. We must not be afraid to obey God's word. There must be a willingness on our part. I will do whatever it takes. Make any sacrifice. Right? Pay any price. To obey God's word. That's my non-negotiable. Disobedience to Christ is not an option. 
I will never knowingly violate Christ's commands or biblical principles. That's a right non-negotiable. That's a right precondition to have in your heart. Right goals. Our goal is not to be a good leader, but to be a good servant. It's not to be a successful Christian man, a Christian businessman. It's to be a, it's a holy businessman. Right? It's not to be a successful minister, but a holy minister, a praying minister. Not to be a good teacher, but to be a holy teacher. Our, our goal should be not to be admired, not to be respected, but to be humble. It is not even to be used by God. That must not be your goal. I must be used by God. That's a non-negotiable. No, our goal is I want to be available to God and to be useful for God. So if He chooses to use me, I'll be used. If He chooses not to use me, praise God. If God chooses some other guy at church, I rejoice. If God uses another gal, right, praise God. I'm just available to God and I want to be made useful. But if He chooses me or not to be used by Him, that's up to God. I delight in Christ. Right desires, where it's not about me, it's not man-centered, it's not what I want, but it's what God wants. It's the eternal perspective. I want to stand on that day before Christ, and Christ be pleased and say to me, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's all I want. That's all I desire. Because I desire that, I will plan my life backwards. And I will live my life so that ultimately on that day, Christ is glorified. Look, you know, all these bad decisions, you know, Chris Weber, right? Grady Little, you know, even that poor girl with the poor and unmatched socks and shirt, you know. Even Eve and even Caiaphas, Sanhedrin, God is sovereign, right? God is sovereign over, over our decisions. We cannot negate or undermine, or, or thwart the sovereign will of God by our poor decisions. God's will will, will be done. His will will stand. The issue is, are we going to please God with our decisions, or displease Him? That's the only issue. God's will will be done. Are we going to dishonor God by our decisions, or will we honor Christ? You know, we, I learned this week that pragmatism is an American invention. This philosophy was created in this country. So we're immersed in this pragmatic mindset. All of us, to, to, to a certain degree, we've been influenced by that. May we fight a noble battle against pragmatism. And may we be dominated by a biblical mindset so that we might honor Him. Let's pray.